Welcome back to Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week on Soundboard, we cover the primary candidates running to represent the 5th Congressional District, most of whom live right here in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area. Plus, a conversation with Matthew Slats about what theater can illuminate about local democracy. As R.D. Huffstetler said in his, quote, the most conservative person in Virginia and the most liberal person in Virginia, they both reside in the 5th District. Today we're joined by Charlotte Renee Woods. Charlotte is covering land use, climate, and government. But today we're going to talk about government. So many of us are probably following the presidential primaries, but there's another primary and convention coming up right here in the 5th Congressional District. Can you tell us a little bit about the 5th District? So it is Virginia's largest congressional district. It is about the size of the state of New Jersey, for reference. Um, It spans from Fauquier County close to the Maryland border all the way down to Danville and the North Carolina border. It also touches several other districts in the state. And it's also very politically purple. The constituents range from conservative to liberal. You have these large rural areas with pockets of high-density cities. So it's a, it's a tough seat for anyone who occupies it. Um, you've got a lot of a lot of people to represent, but it also has a lot of opportunity for collaboration with other representatives in the state of Virginia because you know sometimes there's overlapping concerns that parts of the fifth district shares with like the seventh, for instance. Most recently, like Abigail Spamberger had worked with 49 representatives to include some Virginian ones and Denver Riggleman, who currently represents this district on rural broadband expansion. So that's just an example. As my dad often says in the letters he is known to write to his congressman, the fifth district was James Madison's congressional district. Can you tell us a little bit about the processes that the Republicans and Democrats go through when picking candidates? It might shift depending on each election. I know last time there was a caucus, and so that's where, you know— For the Democrats, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then for this time, we're having a Democratic primary on June 9th. This district race is sort of like a little microcosm of the 2020 presidential in that you've got a lot of Democrats lining up to challenge a Republican incumbent. But the Republican incumbent also has one challenger for a convention on April 25th. That's what I've heard from chairman of the GOP party in the area, but I would need to double check if that's changed anytime soon. But the most I've heard is April 25th for that. What's the name of that potential challenger? His name is Bob Good. He's in the Lynchburg area. So far, I have met with and spoken with most of the congressional candidates. The two that remain are Bob Good, the GOP challenger, and one final Democrat, Shadi Ayas. So for this series, you asked each candidate to pick a place in the 5th District that has meaning to them where you could talk to them. So let's start with the incumbent. Where did Denver Riggleman want to meet? Being a very busy incumbent, he did not have very much time. So we actually met at the Starbucks on Route 29. But we did talk about places that are special and meaningful to him. And he really loves the 5th District. He loves the area he lives in where he opened up his distillery in the mountains. He's originally from Northern Virginia, and he and his wife decided to really settle here. So he was in the Air Force, then he sold his cybersecurity companies that he worked for as a private contractor. And then when that happened, he kind of told his wife, tag, you're it. You're the one in the driver's seat. What do you want to do? She said, I want to open a distillery. And so he's talked about how he's now like following her dream. What did he say were some of his accomplishments from his first term in Congress? 
so far in Congress, he's been focused on representing rural communities, which he feels sometimes don't get as much representation at the federal level. He's definitely, like I mentioned earlier, he's worked with Abigail Spanberger and others to get rural broadband funding. So that's a recent win and accomplishment for him. He also really cites his technical approach. He says that the fact that he wasn't some career politician who's spent time serving in local and state seats leading up to this, that he just was a non-politician who eventually became one. He feels that's an asset to him, and he feels like a lot of legislation he helps with or writes gets a better chance of passing with this device of Congress because it's very technical. What are some of his policy goals that he'd like to work on in a second term? He definitely sees where education connects to trade skills, um, and he's not alone in this. has popped up from other congressional candidates that they want to partner with community colleges and sometimes four-year universities on where trade skills can be introduced and you can study and you don't necessarily have to pursue like a liberal arts degree if that's not what you want or need. They want to make sure that trade skills are really filled throughout the district. He also noted how climate resiliency has increasingly become nonpartisan, and he's definitely on board with enhancing renewable energies um, and working with private sectors on that as well. What was something surprising that came up in your conversation with Congressman Roy Goldman? I guess it was interesting how his daughters have all gone into the family business in some way. Two of them work with his wife for their distillery in Virginia and their second location, I believe, in Pennsylvania. And then one of his other daughters is actually studying some of what he did. She wants to go in and, like, follow his footsteps. So he's just— In politics? No, in, like, cyber security mm-hmm. and counterterrorism and— A lot of the candidates I spoke with are, like, really family-oriented. He is really into watching Netflix documentaries if he has free time. And I just—it's not often you hear the quote, like, Netflix and bourbon. I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, on to the Democrats. How many candidates are running? So there are five Democrats running. And then with the two Republicans, that is seven total. Like I said, this is like a microcosm for the 2020 race. It's just so many people running. Is it typical to have this many Democratic candidates for a congressional race in Virginia? I'm not sure what the typical number usually is, but I know that one of the candidates this time actually ran last time. And I know that the 5th congressional seat has flip-flopped between Republicans and Democrats over the years. I know it had Tom Perriello in the past, and then it had Tom Garrett, and then now it has Denver Riggleman, and it could continue to have him, or it could have one of his five Dems or the Republican challenging him. Like we said, this district is huge, but a lot of the Democratic candidates live right here in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the furthest two out, minus Bob Good down in Lynchburg, would be uh, John Lisinski um, is in the Rappahannock area. He's a local government veteran, essentially, and also a veteran. I feel like between doctors and veterans, like that's what's running mostly. Um, And then Shadi Ayas is a doctor, and he lives kind of closer to the West Virginia border. Pretty much the rest are in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area. All right, let's go through these candidates alphabetically. So Shadi Ayas. I am in the works of meeting up with him. We've been messaging back and forth trying to find a good time. And you said Shadi Ayas is a doctor and he lives farther on the west side of the district. Mm -hmm. Okay, where did Artie, is it Huffstetler, Stotler? Roger Dean Huffstetler, and he goes by R.D., We actually met at the baseball field over at UVA. Baseball is really, really important to his family. Multiple generations have played it growing up. He played it. I believe it was his uncle or one of his family members uh, was in, like, minor leagues for a while. And he has a daughter who's two who he wants to start taking her to games so she can grow up familiarized with it as well. So what's his background like other than baseball? So R.D. is originally from North Carolina. 
he likes to, to stress the significance of how he grew up with like a blue collar family. Everyone worked trade jobs and he was the first in his family to graduate from college and his family couldn't afford really to send him to college. So he did that through scholarships and grants and that's part of what he says really inspires him as a potential legislator is he wants to make sure that there's more opportunities for people to go after their dreams or their goals. He's another vet, so he actually served in the Marines going to Iraq and Afghanistan, and then he used the GI Bill to attend Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He worked in the private sector for a while, co-founded an app, spent time working as chief of staff for former U.S. presidential candidate and representative Seth Moulton. He was, Seth Moulton was one of the many 2020 Dems. He never made it to the debate stages and dropped out a few months ago. Locally, he's been an advisor for the TomTom Tom Festival. What are some of his top policy goals? He praised Tim Kaine legislation a few times, so I feel like he would want to support a lot of Kaine policy from the House or be inspired by similar policy. He really talked about Medicare X legislation Kaine's been working on, which would create a low-cost public plan for more competition in the healthcare marketplace. During the local and state elections last fall, this was something that came up through multiple candidates across party lines because at one point, Central Virginia had some of the highest premiums. That's something that a lot of people are really still feeling. He wants to increase and enhance addiction programs. His own father actually ended up overdosing from opioids. So for RD, there's a very like personal stake and connection to that as well. He wants to create community college industry partnerships. And so that would have local commerce and people working in community colleges staying in conversation with each other to help kind of with like the school to work bridge, essentially. And also with a focus on rural communities, he wants to be able to have young people have the option to stay in the area they grew up in if they want to and not have to leave necessarily to find work. He's also interested in criminal justice reform and having secured an endorsement from Commonwealth Attorney Jim Hingley. He actually said that Jim is helping him draft some policy that should be launching sometime on his website or be announced sometime soon. So um, yeah, he's tapping into others who know more about various things that can help him. What's something surprising that came up in this conversation? One of his campaign staffers uh, who was with us, who helped me set up the interview, is actually from Oregon and connected with RD last time he ran and is just so, like, such a fan of RD and believes in him to the, to the point that he's temporarily moved back to Virginia to help RD again this time around. And I just thought that was really interesting. And they get along and, like, they act like best friends for a million years. It was really interesting to see. And sometimes I'll interview and it'll be just me and candidates and no one else. And sometimes campaign members will be with us. So... It's always nice for me to watch that dynamic and just I always personally love talking to campaign staffers, too, about what inspires them for who they get behind, because that's, you know, the spotlight's always on the candidate. So sometimes it's nice for me just as the journalist to talk to another behind the scene person and be like, well, what's your story? It's not necessarily going in the print, but I'm curious. All right. Let's keep going down the line. John Lazinski. What spot did he pick for your conversation? John is the most climate-focused of all of the candidates. It is his top campaign priority. So he wanted to meet at, it's recently been renamed to Community Climate Collaborative, formerly known as Charlottesville Climate Collaborative. So we met near those offices and did like a walk and talk, and it was very cold. So we also ducked into a restaurant in the downtown mall and had some warm tea. And he spends time in and out of Charlottesville on occasion. What's his background like? He is yet another <laughs> Marine veteran. He also has worked in local government. Like I said, he's like a local government veteran as well. He served as, on Rappahannock Board of Supervisors. He also served on the school board. 
And he's also been appointed to state level positions from both governors McAuliffe and Northam, like regarding veterans affairs for military. He's definitely got plenty of like local and state experience behind him as he wants to step up to the federal level. And then, like I said, the forefront of his mind is climate resiliency, because in the way he put it is like, if we don't take care of this, how can we take care of anything else? An interesting thing that came up during our conversation was a perspective on climate policy that often doesn't get as much focus as like the more immediate healthy streams, renewable energy components. He supports reducing fossil fuels like gas. And he goes, quote, I'm concerned that dependence on fuels can get us into global conflicts. One of the big reasons we are involved in conflicts with the Middle East right now is fossil fuels. If we reduce our dependency, we wouldn't have to be as involved or necessarily get involved in fighting, quote, these endless wars. So especially as someone who has served in the military, it's just a unique experience in terms of foreign policy as well. He is another big supporter of rural broadband expansion. He notes how it intersects with economy, first responders, education, business, and then it can also play a role in reducing carbon footprints if you can do more telework. And then as, you know, a veteran and a gun owner, he says he supports the Second Amendment, but he also supports gun safety legislation, especially like a ban on high capacity magazines. And he supports uh, early child care education and technical education. And he wants to see enhanced reentry programs for people coming out of the criminal justice system, coming back into society, rebooting their lives. So Claire Russo, another Charlottesville, Albemarle area resident, where did you meet her? So when I was first reaching out to a lot of the candidates suggesting, like, I want to meet somewhere that means something to you. It could be a hiking trail. It could be a restaurant. It could be where you work. It could be even your own house. And then Claire was the one who actually wanted to go on a hike. And it was around a time I had been so busy with work. And I was like, oh, man, I really want to go on a hike soon. And then when she said, let's do that, I was just like, yes. So, yeah, we met up in Crozet area. We hiked around near Sugar Hollow. And it's special to her because she takes her uh, children and her husband there pretty often. And as she is another veteran and her husband is still active duty, a lot of times, like I grew up a military family, I know how hard it is to get time with each other. So when they find time together, they really like to spend time as a family doing outdoorsy things. So you talked about her military background. Is there anything else in her background that you'd want to bring up? Something that Claire is really wants to focus on if she gets elected is just like making sure that various like industries stay local or stay in the state and revitalizing things. Like when you think about Danville's been a big like industrial area and how can we keep it that way and make and make it even better. She also sees where you could bridge with renewable energies on making sure that these industries are spreading throughout the district and the state, but also maybe even manufacturing some of the things like the solar panels or wind turbines. Gun safety legislation was a big one for her. She is, again, another another veteran who does, who does own guns, but she was saying that she's really concerned that the weapons that are out on the battlefield are showing up in her daughter's classroom or have potential to, and that concerns her, so she really wants to support reasonable gun safety legislation, which is what's kind of making its way through a lot of local and state government in recent years. What's something surprising that came up in that conversation? During her time in the military, she worked like sort of with intelligence in a really unique way. When she was in Afghanistan, she actually worked with women, local women, on just kind of being eyes and ears and just you know, reconnaissance. And that was like tapping into a natural local resource that maybe was being overlooked and just also kind of empowering for women to have some some say in what they want to do. And then after she was out of active duty, she got tapped 
with the Central Intelligence Agency Director David Petraeus's counterinsurgency team. She also spent time as a fellow for the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs. And that's where she started to learn about the legislative process. So she was able to apply all these tactical skills that she has and learn how you can deploy them. I'm using all kinds of military puns, but deploy them into legislative practices. So that's something that she feels helped her prepare for this next role if she gets elected. All right. Last up, Dr. Cameron Webb, another Charlottesville Albemarle area resident. Where did he want to meet? He chose to meet at Tonsler Park. He's a UVA alum. He spent a lot of time there when he was in college. And for him, it has a lot of different significance and meaning because it was bonding with friends. But it was also, you know, he said a lot of times as a UVA student, he feels like sometimes that's a little bubble and it's not as intrinsically part of Charlottesville Albemarle as it could be. So he liked to get off campus and get out into the community more. And he saw Tonsler Park as this kind of bridge where as a college student, he could play with some Charlottesville residents that he may not have interacted with. And he still plays basketball to this day. Obviously running for Congress right now, he doesn't get to play quite as much anymore. So you talked about the fact that he was a student at UVA. What's his background like since then? So he studied law and medicine. And then he uses that combination for his position as a faculty member at UVA. And he spearheads some research on like health policy. And he wants to kind of take that to the next level from a federal seat on helping advance healthcare policy. He also had a stint in the White House for both the Obama and Trump administrations. So he really cites that experience of being a White House fellow during that transition, spending six months with each administration. And he kind of applies that to his campaign right now going around the 5th District. As R.D. Huffstetler said in his, quote, the most conservative person in Virginia and the most liberal person in Virginia, they both reside in the 5th District. And Cameron really sees that as well. So as he's been going around talking with potential future constituents, he's really been making an effort to figure out how he can best represent everyone. What are some of his top policy goals? Addressing health care. <laughs> that is one of his top policy goals, obviously as a doctor, but also as somebody who's worked in healthcare policy and studied it, been a White House fellow. So it's really something that is very important to him. So some of his top priorities are access to health care, climate resiliency, and economic mobility. A quote from him, being a 30-something-year-old millennial, well, zenial, actually, I think he said he was a zenial candidate, he said, quote, we are a generation where we are going to earn less than our parents. I think a lot of millennials and zenials and Gen Xers really feel that. And he says that, like, sometimes there's a lot of air pockets of people who lack opportunities that can help them, quote, move up the ladder economically. Similar to a lot of the other candidates that are really big on fostering opportunity, that's something that he wants to address. He says those opportunities can be built through education, workforce development, through building housing. Affordable housing is something he would address as well. Transportation. So he just really sees like an intersection of different sectors. When I met up with him, he was the first person I interviewed for this series back in January. And he calls himself a cinephile. He loves watching movies when he has free time. And I guess he had just watched Parasite the night before or something. And we know that it's gone on to win Academy Awards. I haven't seen it yet. He was kind of nerding out about that a little bit. And I was like, no spoilers, no spoilers. But I will be checking back in with all of the candidates um, as we get closer to the primaries. At the time I was speaking with all of them, it's still a little earlier in their campaign, so maybe even by the time this WTJU segment airs, several of the candidates might have more policy specifics and details on their site. I know Shadi Ayas was actually telling me his site's under construction right now. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with all these candidates and start to get to know them over what will be a, a whole process of primaries and campaigning. What themes did you notice in this race? Workforce development and education came up a lot for, through every candidate. It seems like climate did, too. Yeah, climate came up through all of them. Some of them have more specific, concrete ideas for how they want to address things, and some of them, they, they know that, that it's an area they want to tackle, but they're still figuring out how exactly and how can an intersector be intertwined with a different policy as well that maybe you can bridge two things together. Those were the two that really came up the most. Healthcare did pop up a lot, especially from at least one of the doctors. It's doctors and veterans, basically. And then Bob Good, he's at uh, Liberty University. What I'll be talking to him and Shadi Ayas within the next few weeks. What do you think are some of the major differences between the candidates, especially the many Democratic candidates in the race? So I guess at this point, a lot of these candidates have a lot of similar ideas generically. So I think going forward in the next few weeks, next couple of months, seeing the specifics of their policy proposals hammered out through them talking to me again or talking to other press or dropping uh, detailed segments on their websites of, you know, here's how I'm going to address policy X and here's like the step-by-step process for how I would hope that it would play out kind of thing. Well, you can read all of those profiles on Charlottesville tomorrow. Can you say what the articles start with again? An hour with dot, dot, dot. I would just say that in a presidential year, it's very easy to be so focused on the, you know, the national, the big capital P race. Um, but we have legislative, executive and judicial branches of our government. They all provide checks and balances. They all have a say in, in each other. So definitely pay attention to your fifth congressional district because that seat matters just as much as who ends up becoming or staying our president. All right. Let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? General Assembly is coming to a close. So I am going to be working on kind of like a legislative roundup of what passed that is relevant and applicable to Charlottesville, Albemarle area, as well as some of like the climate policies, too, because that's been a big one this session. Um, so I'll be working on that and I have a few other things up my sleeve that I can't really talk about just yet. Ooh, exciting. Yes. <laughs> um, and then if coronavirus doesn't become as big as it sounds like everyone's afraid it could be, I hopefully might be going on a cruise for the very first time soon. So we'll see. Yes, Charlotte deserves a vacation. <laughs> I'm going to come back uh, lobster red because I cannot tan. <laughs> but with great vitamin D levels. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. On that note of extreme envy. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. I think those systems are strong, but they're very boring and they're very, they're very opaque. Um, my name is Matthew Slats. As of right now, I'm a PhD student at the University of Virginia in the School of Architecture. For a long time, I've been living in Charlottesville thinking about art and creativity and community engagement and those types of things. How would you define democracy, especially in a local context? When I think about democracy, I think about 
everyday people feeling like they have a voice and a place to share that and to find ways to engage other people about those ideas. So it's really about having a relationship with other people and then trying to work towards a vision for what the future of, say, of your community might look like. For me, democracy works best on the small scale, which I think a lot of people would agree with. So you've been involved in a symposium called Imagining a New Democracy. That's a really big project. Can you tell us a little bit about it? The symposium and summit uh, kind of started off thinking really about places of democracy, right? Like you think of all the different places we go to to participate. And every year in Virginia, we go to the election booths and we vote. Um, You might show up at a city council meeting. Um, You might go be a part of your PTO or your church or whatever. So we were trying to really think about like what spaces are around Charlottesville and how do we make those spaces more accessible to as broad a group of people as possible. But also really trying to think about how do we bring some fun and creativity to those spaces. I mean, for the most part, I think people see those spaces as kind of boring. They're always the same voices. So the question really was about how do we bring... Um, a different way of doing things to Charlottesville and try it out and see what happens with it. One thing that we were trying to do was forefront stories. So instead of um, writing policy, which is very abstract, and when you think about policy, most people think about people behind closed doors writing something down and then people show up and they vote on it. But instead of doing that, what, what we were trying to say is, well, that should emerge from the experiences and stories of everyday people. In the legislative theater workshop that we did, we started by creating plays about people's experiences that they've had in Charlottesville. So we had several stories come forward, like one about a group of black teens that had written a play that was kind of critical of the local police and their experiences of actually having the police try to shut their play down. Another one was about a student who had gone into the hospital and she had a bill and the bill was like massive and she didn't know how she was going to pay for it. So she was struggling with like, how do you deal with the fact that you need to be healthy and and financially stable. Another one was just talking about like how the site of city council here in Charlottesville functions. They wrote those plays in about two hours, even though we'd been working on some stuff like that for a few months. And that became the kind of the starting point for the whole project. So they wrote plays about real experiences that they'd had. Mm-hmm. And then where does the legislative democracy part of it come into Yeah, so uh, as a part of the event that took place, they then performed that in front of an audience. The audience then got to kind of comment and talk about what they saw. We asked about, like, where's the power dynamic in these these situations? What might one person or a different person feel? Critically thinking about what are the stories telling us? What are the roles that people are playing? And then what we did is we replayed some of those scenes, but then the audience members got to interject in different ways. So... Like one of the uh, plays, uh, as it evolved, again, you had this negotiation between these students and kind of like the police and some of the school administration, right? What one of the audience members did is they kind of interjected themselves as a mediator. So that happened with a bunch of the different stories. And then the audience got to write policy. So they had a piece of paper and they said, yeah, here are the policies I think we should create for Charlottesville. That got handed to a group of policy leaders, and then they came back with some proposals. And the proposals that they came back with were, one, redesigning city council chambers. And one was about creating an app so that when people were sitting down with their doctor and thinking of medication, they could actually look at the costs. And then the last one was about actually creating a mediator. Um, 
and doing a bunch of mediation training in the community. So when you saw these moments where people were having to negotiate, you could have a person that would help do that. Um, So in the end, the community got to make amendments to those ideas. And then, and then we came up with final proposals and the group voted on them. I mean, it was like a two and a half hour process. So it wasn't, it wasn't short, but we had a lot more fun than sitting at a typical meeting. We got to like connect people's actual experiences of how they live in Charlottesville and Albemarle County to specific policy that could actually make their lives better. And that was really the goal of the whole event. How do they want to redesign the city council chambers? Well, there's been conversation as of late about redeveloping City Hall. And so, so one of the things was making sure there's childcare. That's been a conversation that's been going on for a long time. They were also thinking about also creating a space that is less hierarchical. If, you, if anybody has ever been in, in City Council, um, when you're talking at a public comment, you are in the lowest spot in the whole space. How do we bring council down to a level that they're actually not separate from the community, but a part of the community? And then how do we actually create ways of actually having things be more collaborative? One of the things that council used to do was have these town halls all around the different uh, neighborhoods, and people, a bunch of people would show up, and they would sit and talk about ideas, and those haven't happened in, in a few years. So that was one of the ideas that people came up with when they when they were thinking about redesigning city council chambers. Tell me a little bit about how you participate in local democracy. A bunch of different ways. I make sure I participate in all the elections. Um, I think it's really important to vote um, and have that voice be heard in that one way, but that's not the only way. You show up at city council chambers. And sometimes I'm just going there to be there. Like I'm not going there to talk. I uh, go there to just to sit and listen and actually hear from other people, which is something you can also do from home because you can just watch it online. I've been involved in some other projects about um, this one process called participatory budgeting. What is participatory budgeting? Yeah. <laughs> Most people are just scared of budgeting in their own home. But for me, when you think of a budget, especially a city budget, what you should be thinking about is a conversation about what does this community want to invest in Again, most people think about numbers and spreadsheets and they get really cross-eyed and bored. But really what budgets are is a, is a commitment from the community to think about where they want to be in five or ten years. So what participatory budgeting does is it creates like a really significant process where in which, again, we listen to people's ideas. Then they create proposals based on those ideas and then the community votes on the, the proposals and the ones that win get funded, and then they happen. So, you know, if, if you're like, yeah, I really need a bus stop out in front of my neighborhood to get, so I can get access to the bus, that could be an idea. And then people come together to create those proposals. So, okay, what does it really cost to put a bus shelter in? Um, and then the community gets to vote on the project. That's a, a thing that I've been trying to work on for a while here in Charlottesville, and it's been on and again, off again. We've talked about accessibility a lot, but what yeah. other really serious challenges do you see to local democracy and local participation in government? I mean, the major thing that I see is distrust. Um, we hear, hear a lot from people like, why would I ever do that? Why would, like, those people aren't going to listen to me. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that distrust? What are some places that people have said it comes from? Uh, so we've used that term accessibility, but we shall also use the term transparency. I think people just find 
the process is really opaque. I bet if they have a time and they could, they dug into it, they'd realize that, that a lot of people are taking their time and thinking really deeply about, say, how some public dollars are invested in schools or whatever. I think those systems are strong, but they're very boring and they're very, they're very opaque. So again, how do you allow people to access them? Uh, it's not enough to throw up some posters on a wall and, and then expect a bunch of people to show up. You have to have those relationships, and that's really what this is about. I mean, the city's created by all of us, you know, being here and living here and you know, going out to dinner here and all those all those things that we do when we live in the city. Yeah, I think the distrust just is part of it's not local, part of it's national. Part of it's, you know, what goes on at, in Washington, D.C., and that trickles down into local stuff. Um, but I also just think it's really about transparency. And so how do you make things as transparent as possible so that people can understand and see and, and feel like they, they can have a voice in how decisions are being made? Who has a responsibility to participate in local government, especially given all of the obstacles that we've talked about? Who has a responsibility? I, what I want to say is we all do, right? Mm-hmm. We all have a responsibility because it's, all of us are in one way are affected, but that doesn't take into account that some of us, you know, can like leave our job in the afternoon to go to a meeting or aren't working two or three jobs and don't have kids to take care of after school and all those other things. So again, it's about finding ways to make that possible for people uh, in ways that are creative and fun. I mean, it, you can do things... Uh, and I think there's a lot of people around the country that have been, that have been experimenting. I mean, we did a, a project once where you know, we did a lemonade stand where we were – so instead of going door-to-door and surveying people, which we hear from a lot of people in Charlottesville are so sick of people being surveyed, but we just put up a lemonade stand and said, hey, like, instead of paying us money, like, we'll give you a glass of lemonade if you give us two cents, like, in actually in their experiences and knowledge. One thing that I was talking to Emily Hayes about recently was the fact that people who have more power, like we've been talking about, have more access to meetings and that especially when it comes to development, that means that communities where the houses are more expensive and the people are more highly educated end up having their voice heard louder. How how can we express that responsibility to participate if we have the ability to without over-amplifying voices of people who are already have a lot of power in the community? It's a good question. The one thing I would say, and I think this is a different way of thinking about power, is that power isn't something that people necessarily have. It's something they use. And it doesn't have to be used by, like, say, showing up at a, at a city council meeting, right? Like, they could write a story about it. They could, they could write a song about it. It doesn't have to be expressed in the, tr- in the traditional ways that we have. Because everybody has a different way of using their voice. So you want to be open to those things. And that was a lot about what the workshop was about or the summit was about. It was like, how do we try a different way of, like, thinking about power? We were joking about how we see it as, like, a bouncing ball in a crowd, right? Like, you, the ball goes up and you, you touch it and it moves one direction and then someone else touches it and moves a different direction. Finding ways to then think about, like, how does everybody feel like they have a role in doing that? Even if they don't want to, if they want to step back and, and be quiet and sit in the corner, that's, that's totally fine. At least they were there. So that's something we, we talked a lot about, and that's really core to a lot of things I think about in terms of all the stuff. How could the government get closer to those concerns? It's, this is a hard question because I, I think you have to recognize that there's amazing people working for the city, right? There's a lot of thoughtful, brilliant, smart people who are working very, very hard just to do their everyday job. And when you say, oh, you need to be out talking to people more, that 
adds and adds and adds to the to the amount of work that they have to do. So I think we have to be very cognizant of what we're asking of of government. But I think we don't really think about how we forefront you know, those conversations. And when I first moved to Charlottesville, the city was going through this development plan for the area on the south side of Charlottesville. And I was just very new to the city. And we had a bunch of architects show up. We walked around the neighborhood a little bit. And then they drew up some plans. And they said, okay, here's your vision. for the, Here's our vision for the future of that. And I just didn't see that rooted in people's experience. So I think we have to take the time and we have to forefront that in, in a lot of things and trying to make those opportunities get accessible, meet people where they're at, like go into neighborhoods, have direct relationships. You know, when a high schooler can walk into a, a city office and be like, oh, hey, there's John. I met him at a meeting or a project we did together. Like all of a sudden it totally changes the dynamic and the relationship of city and resident in, in really good ways. So I grew up in Fluvanna County, which isn't that far away. And then I went to UVA. And so when I went to UVA, I kept my voter registration in Fluvanna County. And it was a really hard decision for me, right, whether I would move it or, or keep it there. And you hear people say stuff like, you know, you live in the city now, like you have a stake, you should change your voter registration. And then other people are like, I'm only going to live here for a couple of years. I'm transient. And in a lot of ways, Charlottesville is such a company town. What responsibility do you think UVA students have? How should UVA students participate in government? I think your comment about you know, Charlottesville being a company town is really important. I think one of the things that students need to do is, first of all, build relationships. They can be active in thoughtful ways, but be active in a way that recognizes that you are an outsider. I mean, even though I've been in Charlottesville, I'm not from Charlottesville. I feel very much like an outsider still, um, even though I've been here and I've been active in various things. Don't go out and say, you know, I'm going to go change Charlottesville and I've got this great idea and... You should go out and meet people and talk to people and build relationships. And the more we do that, I think the stronger we are as a community. So any UVA student that's showing up in town and says, you know, I want to be a part, I want to participate in something, go out and just meet people who are already doing that work. Start there. And then if you see a gap, then I say, yeah, then see how that, see how you can make something happen. Don't come in acting like you're going to change the world in a community you've never been in. Um, there's always people that have been working on this, these ideas and these issues for a long time. Like, get to know them, um, understand their histories, understand where they've come from, understand the struggles and the successes that they've had, and use that as a way of supporting and magnifying their work. And I know that's something I'm super dedicated in. Like, the idea of, of magnifying other um, grassroots organizers is something that I'm really committed to. Who do you want to magnify? Oh, how can you not follow the work that like a person like Joy Johnson is doing in Charlottesville? I mean, her and all of those at, at Public Housing Association of Residents, the work that they've been doing for over 20 years to advocate for public housing residents, not only the way she does that, but the way she then works with others to support them to play those similar roles, which I think is really important. Joy is a person that this community should see as a treasure. Um, but there's a lot of there's been a lot of people like that. I mean, Holly Edwards, who passed away a few years ago, is another important person. The mayor, Nakai Walker, has been doing amazing things. I mean, she, in very simple ways, she changes the consciousness of the city, which I think is just this amazing ability that she has. Like, there's these moments, there's multiple that I can remember where she will make this very simple statement that an audience will, will totally see the way of of viewing Charlottesville. And I think that comes from her own experience and her own work to make Charlottesville a better place. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really great work going on. And, and 
I, for one, want to see more investment in what the black community is doing in Charlottesville. They're leading the, the way in envisioning a Charlottesville that's actually more equitable and inclusive. Is there anything else you'd like to share? <laughs> I was, this question always comes at the end of the interview, and I'm like, hmm. I never, th- I never think about it like, early enough to actually come up with something. <laughs> what obstacles prevent you from participating in local democracy? Tweet us at CVL Soundboard. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at cbellsoundboard.org. <laughs>